We've only just begun to live. White laces and promises. A kiss for luck and we're on our way. We've only just begun. You probably recognize these lyrics. We've only just begun by the Carpenters is one of, the, one of the most iconic love songs ever written. It's interesting to note that this song, or at least partial, partially this song was partially written um, for a wedding-themed advertisement commercial for Crocker National Bank in 1970. The song was played as a young couple gets married in a church and drives off into the sunset holding hands. And the advertisement ends with the lyrics, we've only just begun. Repeatedly sung and subtitles coming up that read, you've got a long way to go and we like to help you get there. And so, thinking about advertisements and commercials, we know that they don't always depict true and good things, yet the combination of the video and the lyrics proclaims a powerful reality. It's a reminder that one's wedding is not the finish line, but it's the beginning of two people on a journey, learning, growing, and working together day by day. It's very much like a Christian coming to faith in Christ. Justification by faith is not the finish line, but it's very much part of the beginning of the process of salvation, which also includes sanctification, that is, growing in spiritual maturity. And so this week, as I was reading Colossians 1, 9 through 14, the text that we're going to be in this morning, the lyrics of, we only just begun, kept popping in my head. Because I think this idea of coming to faith in Christ being the starting line rather than the finish line accurately captures Paul's prayer. And so to give you a reminder, I preached Colossians 1, 1 through 8 a couple weeks ago. And that text is where Paul praises God. He thanks the Lord for the Colossians' salvation. He thanks that they've been saved by the gospel and they are evidently pro, they're evidently displaying that gospel to the watching world. Nevertheless, in this text, when we come to verse 9, we see him pivot from thanksgiving to petition. It's like Paul is saying, you've only just begun. I praise God for your salvation and genuine progress, yet this starting line should be leading to your spiritual maturity, and I'm praying towards that end. Paul's fighting against Christians becoming complacent, and he pleads with the Lord on their behalf that they might grow deeper and deeper in the gospel of grace. And I think it's fitting this morning for the text to be preached to us in BC because we're a relatively new church. You see, there's certainly a temptation to be complacent after the newness of NBC might start to wear off. We could easily think that we're approaching the finish line when in reality, we've only just begun. Paul's prayer should be our prayer too. And so with that being said, let's stand up and read Colossians 1, 9 through 14. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. All right, so I have four observations from the text this morning. That's going to be our four points. Point number one, the Christian's petition. Number two, the Christian's purpose. Number three, the Christian's practice. And number four, the Christian's praise. And I'll give you that again. The Christian's petition, the Christian's purpose, the Christian's practice, and the Christian's praise. And so look with me at the beginning of verse 9. This is what Paul says. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. So this verse certainly echoes verse 3, when hearing about the congregation, Paul abounds in thanksgiving. Yet here in verse 9, Paul asks God to help them, interceding on their behalf. And I want to say two quick things about prayer before we dive into the actual content of the prayer. Number one, priority, and number two, frequency. You see, Paul prioritizes praying for the congregation because he grasped the importance of prayer. Jesus says in John 15, 17, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Paul understood what Jesus taught, that whatever you ask that aligns with Jesus' will, he may give to you. Paul prioritizes prayer because look at me. He knows prayer matters before the Lord. He knows that if he asks God for what God desires, God will answer the prayer. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, what does it say the will of God is? Our sanctification. And that's exactly what Paul is praying. He prioritizes praying to the Lord because he knows prayer matters. And secondly, we can observe the frequency of Paul's prayers. It's not that hearing upon it's not about it's not when hearing the congregation Paul immediately started praying no it's even better than that the text says since the day we heard this we haven't stopped praying for you this wasn't a one time prayer no he was frequently praying for the church whom he had never even met and so NBC I want you to think about this with me What does the frequency of our prayers look like for one another? When you hear about members contracting COVID or members embarking on foster care, or you hear about other members' evangelistic opportunities, are you praying for them day by day? Are you frequently praying for them? And if not, well, then the question is, why is that? Well, I I don't think it's time I'm reminded of John Piper's incredibly convicting quote when he says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove on the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Gosh, that's convicting. I think we can all say that it's not time. Well, if it's not that, then what is it? I think it might be forgetfulness. 
I think we just simply do not remember because of the busyness of our days. Nevertheless, that's, why, that's where our membership directory comes into handy. You see, it's a great tool to aid us in regularly praying for one another. Stick it in your Bibles and commit to praying for members. Just say, I'm going to pray for two members a day or three members a day. And it's great because you can use the sides to write in specific prayer requests. So when you get to that name, you have something to pray for them. So in the Lord's kindness, if you employ this tactic, you will surely find yourself like Paul, frequently praying for others. All right, so let's glance back at verse 9 and let's really stare at the word asking. That's the key word that signals this is a prayer of petition. And so now we come to the question, what exactly is Paul asking the Father for on behalf of the Colossian congregation? And so this brings us to our first point this morning, the Christian's petition. And so he prays, we are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is a prayer for the converted Christian. Paul in Romans 1 tells us that the unconverted actually suppress the truth. Like pushing a beach ball down in the water. They want nothing to do with the knowledge of God. Yet, because Christ has saved this Colossian congregation, Paul can pray that they might be filled up with the truth. And I want to quickly note that it's God who does the filling. And that's exactly why Paul is petitioning to the Lord, because he knows it's only by God that this congregation will be filled up with the knowledge of his will. And so now we ask, all right, what is the knowledge of his will? Well, ordinarily, when Christians speak about the will of God, we really speak about God's will of direction. What job should I take? Where should I live? Or who should I marry? However, this seems to be a man-made category. Really, when we look at the Bible, the Bible speaks about God's will really in two different ways. His will of decree and his will of precept. So if you can, turn with me to Deuteronomy 29, 29, because I think this is a really, really important verse helping us understand these two categories. So Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses writes, The hidden things belong to the Lord our God. But the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. I'll read it one more time. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. So we see two things. We see a secret or hidden will that belongs to the Lord and only the, world, the Lord, and that's the will of decree. And we see revealed things that belong to us so that or for the purpose we may follow God. And so Kevin DeYoung, in speaking about these three categories, says this, and I think this quote is really helpful. He says, trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of precept is obedient, but waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. It's bad for your life 
and harmful for your sanctification. And so what he's saying is worrying or obsessing about God's will of direction is harmful for our sanctification because it prevents us from being after what really matters. God's word, knowing and obeying his word. And that's why Paul is praying that these Christians might be filled with God's will of precept, his word, knowledge about Christ and how that impacts our daily lives. And so turn back with me to Colossians, but I want to go ahead to Colossians 2, 2 through 3, because I think this is a really important verse. And so Colossians 2, 2 through 3. Paul says this, he says, gosh, this is a good verse. He says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. Christ in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What was once hidden for this congregation is now available in abundance through Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Look to Jesus to find true wisdom and knowledge. In him and only in him can one understand God's will, what's fully pleasing to the Lord. And so I want to say this, it's not knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Deepening our knowledge of Christ will ultimately transform our walk with Christ. And I'll say that again, deepening our knowledge of Christ will ultimately transform our walk with Christ. Knowledge of Christ is essential for right living. I think that's what Paul's saying right here, and it's so important. Knowledge of Christ is essential for right living. Paul isn't praying that this congregation might have knowledge just for the sake of them winning their Thursday night local Bible trivia. No, he qualifies these words with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I'm not really sure if there's a difference between these two words. It seems that Paul combines them to emphasize how this knowledge of God affects our heads and our hands. It's a prayer to know the truth and discernibly live out this truth by making good decisions. It's a prayer for spiritual maturity. And so I think a good question we can ask ourselves is this. Are we regularly praying for our spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth of others? See, I know we're thankful for the Lord for our salvation and genuine progress, but do we prioritize our spiritual maturity as Paul does in his prayer? You see, Paul could have easily prayed for a number of things for this congregation, but I don't think it's unusual that he only asked for one thing, their sanctification. He does this in other letters like Ephesians 3, Philippians 1, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Paul prioritizes their spiritual growth because he knows that it's only through this that the congregation will walk in a way worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So think about it with me. Are we regularly praying for our spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth of others? I think we can all unanimously conclude that this should be the Christian's petition. Like we're all saying, yes, we should be doing this, but I fear that some of us fail to regularly pray for this because our prayers suffer from the condition known as nearsightedness. We are asking God for things that are right in front of us, 
like our health or our job or our safety or success in school. But we tend to forget about things that maybe are less visible, like our spiritual maturity. And don't get me wrong here. I I want you all to look at me. Don't get me wrong. We should absolutely be praying about our safety in the midst of this pandemic. Yes, we should be praying. Yet if we find ourselves more concerned about our safety than our spiritual growth, it could be a sign that our priorities need to be rearranged. Is our overarching desire our safety or our sanctification? Look to your prayers to help you answer that question. So maybe some of us do conclude, yes, my priorities do need to be rearranged. Well, I think one way that can happen is to be reminded of the Christian's purpose. And that brings us to our second point, the Christian's purpose. Look with me at verse 10. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. I think it's always profitable um, when coming to a text like this to circle or underline whenever you come across words like for, because, or so that. It's just helpful because it signals to the reader the author's purpose statement in the preceding statement. So why does Paul pray for their spiritual why does Paul pray for their spiritual maturity? Well, so that purpose statement they may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And I do not want us to miss this connection. Knowledge of God leads us to walk worthy of the Lord. And knowledge is not an end in itself, but it leads us to a life pleasing of the Lord. I feel like this is an obvious point. I keep harping on it, but I want us to walk out of here realizing that knowledge of God is vital to living a life worthy of the Lord. It's like in making an Americano. If you miss the hot water, what do you have? Well, you just have an espresso. And if you miss the espresso, what do you have? Well, you just have a cup of water. You see, both ingredients are essential, like knowledge of God is essential for living a life worthy of Christ. And brothers and sisters, growing in your theological knowledge is a great endeavor. You cannot love someone you do not know. Yet, this knowledge should always lead to obedience, living a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And that's the Christian's purpose. This is our purpose, that we may live a life worthy of the Lord. And you might be wondering, all right, Bryce, you've said that a lot, but what does it mean to live a life worthy of the Lord? Well, if we glance down a couple verses, we see that we've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the son he loves. You see, a new king brings a new kingdom. And living a life worthy of the Lord is not doing anything that would bring shame on our king. It's making sure that our speech and conduct is worthy of our king. That everything we do pleases our king. And so Christian, Paul's purpose must be our purpose. We have been transferred into a new kingdom being ruled by a new king. We've been given a new purpose. That is to walk in a way worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And this understanding of our high purpose ought to cause us to regularly pray for our spiritual maturity and the spiritual maturity of others. Let our prayers reflect what we truly prioritize. 
our spiritual maturity. And if that is the case, if we do pray, if we do pray this, we will start to regularly see us grow in a way that we're walking more and more worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. All right. So now, as, you're key, as you keep thinking about this text, you might have come across the thought of, Bryce, when you explain worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, you kind of explain in a way that's like a little conceptual, maybe a bit too abstract. It's like, would you take it off the top shelf and bring it down and explain it in a more practical way? I think that's a great idea, but I don't have to do it. Paul already does it in the preceding verses, which comes to our third point, the Christian practice. You see, Paul paints a picture of what it looks like to please the Lord by giving a list of four characteristics that should be present in the Christian's lives. He does not give an exhaustive list, meaning this is the only thing to do, but he, yet he gives concrete characteristics to put to flesh a life that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And if this is the case, then we as Christ followers should aspire to grow more and more in these characteristics. We certainly ought to put these into practice. So here's what I want to do with this list. I want to, number one, explain each of these. And number two, give an application for us as Christians to help our other brothers and sisters grow in these areas. I certainly could give an application pertaining to the individual, but as I thought more and more about this list, I think it's probably our natural inclination to think about ourselves rather than thinking about others in the congregation. I pray that these applications would push us to battle for other members' spiritual maturity as we fight for our own. So this brings us to the first characteristic, bearing fruit in every good work. Jesus says in Matthew 12, make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. A, a tree is recognized by its fruit. You see, unbelievers always bear bad fruit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing unless we're connected to the vine. We cannot bear fruit. Yet, when we are connected to the vine, when we are converted, we're able to produce fruit. We're able to walk in a way that glorifies God in every area of our lives. And the fruit should be limitless, being produced in every good work, in our jobs, homes, neighborhoods, and our hobbies. There ought not to be a single space in our lives where good fruit is not being produced. Yet the reality is that Christians are hybrid trees. We bear both good fruit and bad fruit. And since Christians sometimes do not bear good fruit in every good work, we need one another to ask intentional questions and check up in every area of our lives. Questions like, how's your marriage going? Are you encouraging your wife? How is your wife doing? Are you washing her in the word? Well, how is your singleness going? Are you seeing it right now as a gift or a burden? How is your dating life? How has purity been for you? Well, how has work been going? Are there specific temptations that you're dealing with at this very moment? Well, how has parenting been for you this week? Have you been too harsh? Have you been impatient with your kids? 
What does that look like? And congregation, when we ask these heart-searching questions, expect honest answers, which will lead you to, by God's grace, speak the truth in love. And when hearing about it, you're able to pray that the Lord might bear fruit in these areas that other members are struggling in. We should be after one another's spiritual maturity. And that looks like getting down to the nitty gritty in each one of our lives. All right. So next, Paul goes on to say growing in the knowledge of God. And so we talked a lot about growing in the knowledge of God, and I'm not going to really harp on this, but I do want to point out this reoccurring, reoccurring cycle of events that results in each one being increased. So here's kind of the cycle. It's like this, then this, and because of that, each are increased more and more. So growing in the knowledge of God will lead to a life being lived worthy of the Lord, which in turn then leads to growing more in God's knowledge which then leads to producing more fruit. Do you see the cycle right there? And each one increases as you grow in it. Knowledge of God, again, is vital to living a life worthy of the Lord. So what does it look like for us to spur one another on to love God more and more? I think that's a great question we can ask. But before we ask that, I just want to go out and say this. Um, I dislike, maybe even border on hate lawn care. It's like that's one thing that like as a husband or a homeowner that I so much just like wish that wasn't the case. Like if it was acceptable for the grass to grow above my roof, I would be fine with that. It's like it would not bother me, but it's not acceptable. And sadly, it's actually kind of gotten close sometimes, um, but it hasn't gotten close lately. And there's literally only one reason for it. Henry, my two year old son, he always comes up to me every single day saying, Dada, mow grass. Literally this morning, it was so funny. This morning, I, he, he came up to me, five in the morning. Yay, Henry, I love that you wake up so early. But he came up to me this morning, and I said, Henry, good morning, I love you. And he looked at me and he said, Dada, mow grass. And I, I looked at him and I said, son, it's dark outside. What do you want me to do? It's unbelievable. That's all he wants to do is mow grass. He loves it when I hold him to cut the grass. It's literally like clockwork every day, he says, Dada, mow grass. And here's the point. Henry reminds me of my household chore every single day, even when the grass doesn't even need to be mowed. Yet this reminder has radically changed the way that I approach my household duties. And shouldn't we be doing something very similar to one another? It's not, hey, you need to mow your grass. Some people probably do need to be reminded of that. But it's what theological book are you reading? How are you growing in God's word? What verses are you memorizing? We ought to be asking these questions to one another daily, reminding each other that knowledge of God's word is vital for living a life worthy of the Lord. We should be after one another's spiritual maturity. And one way that looks like is spurring one another on in knowing God. It's not a... Um, I, I think in, in thinking about asking these questions, we can be like, you know, we're kind of imposing on their lives, but that's not the case at all. If we truly love them, then we'll ask them these questions. If we truly care about their spiritual maturity, then these will be some of the first questions that we ask. All right. So thirdly, Paul says, 
being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And so I think we all know this, but the Christian life is lived out in a world that is stained by sin. As Christians, we are not immune to suffering. It's actually promised for us. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. You see, Paul prays that the Christians will be strengthened with all power so that they might have great endurance and patience. He knows that this world will bring suffering for the Christian. He understands that, so he prays this prayer. And we must note that this power certainly doesn't come from anything we do. No, it's strength according to God's might. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave dwells in the Christian. And so through the Word of God, the Spirit of God strengthens us with all power to help endure hardships with great patience. And so hear me out. I want to say this. This is the application for us. In these sufferings and hardships, we desperately need one another to point us to the Word of God. Specifically, Christ's consummation of all things. That means when He returns, He will bring a new heaven and a new earth. And with that, there will be no tears and no sin and no suffering. Help your brother and sister lift up their eyes to eternity so when they look back to earth, their sufferings will look faint. And I'm not minimizing the sufferings at all. I'm just saying it's actually just a small time frame compared to eternity. And so NBC... We should be after one another's spiritual maturity. And reminding people about our eternal destination will help produce endurance and patience in the midst of suffering. All right, and so this brings us to our last observation in the text, the Christian's praise. So we've come to our fourth and final point, yet Paul hasn't changed his line of thought. He's still giving us characteristics of a life pleasing to the Lord. So he finishes this prayer with this final characteristic, which is joyfully giving thanks to the Father. This is what he says in verse 12 through 14. He says, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting, like when you think about Paul in these last two verses, to think about how he constantly gives thanks to the Lord. I mean, he spent most of the first eight verses giving thanks to the Lord, and then four verses later, he circled back to the exact same thing. Why is that? I don't think this is very profound, but it's Paul never stops thanking the Lord. It's he's never done with thanking the Lord. Albert Moeller says this. I thought this quote was helpful. He said, to fail in thankfulness is to fail to honor God. And this is the biblical description of fallen and sinful humanity. We are a thankless lot. And I think that's so true because Paul says in Romans 1 that the ungodly fail to honor God and give thanks. Ungratefulness to God is a sign of the unconverted. Yet on the other side, which is Paul's point here, a sign of regeneration in the Christian is a heart that joyfully give thanks to the Lord. 
To put it simply, a thankful heart is a heart pleasing to God. And we uniquely see a man right here who has never finished giving praise to God. He never stops thanking the Lord. And so I think that right there should trigger us to ask the question, all right, what is he thanking the Lord about? Why is he so thankful? Well, I think one reason that Paul is always, I think one of those reasons is Paul is always meditating and pondering on the gospel and the benefits of the gospel that are ours in Christ. And I come to this conclusion because at the end of this prayer, he goes on this gospel type rant. He seems so thankful to the Lord because it seems like the gospel is just oozing out of him. And if you are sitting in your seat right now thinking, what's the difference between Paul and me? Why do I not always overflow with thanksgiving? Why do when people look at me, they really don't see a thankful person, they might see an ungrateful person? Well, maybe it's because we are so absent-minded, failing to contemplate throughout the day the gospel of Jesus Christ and the benefits that are ours in Him. Brother and sister, be reminded of your position in Christ and the privileges which that entails. And it will ultimately lead to a more thankful heart pleasing to the Lord. And so that's what verses 12 through 14 really do. And so let's dive into those. So Paul starts in verse 12 saying that God has enabled or qualified us to share in the saints inheritance in the life. And so Paul right out of the gate says, thank you for bringing us into the inheritance that belongs to the saints. He has made us fit or qualified us to partake in this inheritance. And I want to focus on the word enabled or qualified. How do you qualify someone? Well, this verb isn't talking so much about the practice. It's more talking about the position. There's this uh, one of my favorite opening scenes in a TV show is um, Madam Secretary. Have you all ever seen that show? It's an amazing scene where this woman who is a college professor is at her house and she's at her kitchen table and like 10 armored trucks pull up and out comes the president of the United States to her house. And so as she's at her kitchen table sitting down with the president of the United States sharing coffee, he asks her to be the secretary of state. It's an amazing scene, and you've got to ask the question, how does this college professor become one of the most important and powerful people in the United States? Well, the president of the United States qualified her, gave her the right to be in that position. And now I want to ask you a question. On what basis are you and I qualified? On the basis of our work? Well, absolutely not. Our work actually disqualifies us because we are born sinners. Our nature is sin. Yet God gave us the right to become children of God. And that right or qualification brings a glorious inheritance. And this inheritance, I, I want to say this. 
is a lot better than Israel's inheritance that we see in the Old Testament. That inheritance was just a foreshadow pointing to what our inheritance is today. And that inheritance is eternal life. That is us one day dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. That is all God's promises to us being yes and amen in Christ. This inheritance is ours. And unlike Israel, we cannot lose this inheritance because our union in Christ, our union is unbreakable. Does this glorious truth not lead us to have a more thankful heart? I certainly think it does. But in this text, Paul does not stop there. He keeps going. He secondly uses the terms rescued and transferred. He says, Speaking of Jesus, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So first we have to ask the question when we're looking at this text, well, what are we rescued from? Well, everyone lies in bondage of sin. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins as we're carried away by the prince of the power of the air. Yet... Yet, there's only one hope for humanity, a, de a divine de deliverance from Jesus Christ. And that's Ephesians 2.4, that God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Christ followers, we have been divinely delivered from the domain of darkness. But hear me out, when we look at this text, we're not just taken out of something. No, we're taken out of something and put into something. We've been taken out of the domain of darkness and we have been divinely placed into the kingdom of God. We've been ushered in to Christ's rule and reign. We have power over sin now and we can walk in obedience to Christ. We're now sharing in all of the benefits of being in the kingdom of God. And we know that it will never be removed from us because of our union with Christ. And i got to ask you a question. Does this magnificent truth that we've been ushered into the kingdom of God, that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, does understanding this not elicit a thankful heart before the Lord? I certainly think it does. But Paul, he doesn't just stop there. He keeps going. It even gets better. Look at what he lands a plane with verse 14. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so redeem means released from bondage. Christ released us from the bondage of sin and Satan. But look at me. That's not it. You see, if he would have just released us as prisoners, we would still be guilty of our sin like prisoners on the run. But flip with me to Colossians 2, 14 through 15. This is a verse worthy of memorizing, maybe even in this upcoming week. This is so rich with gospel truth. Look at what Paul says. He says, He, which is Christ, erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Our sins, this is what the text is saying, our sins, the certificate of debt, the long line of sins that we have committed against the Lord with its obligations that we owed but could not pay was nailed to the cross. 
And Colossians 1.14 proclaims total and complete forgiveness was accomplished by Christ on that rugged cross. In him, we have the forgiveness of sins. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, our sins with its obligations has been erased by Christ. He took the penalty on himself as he suffered the wrath of God. And when God looks at us, he sees that we are spotless, blameless, and without fault. How amazing is that? Does that not elicit a thankful heart before the Lord? Is it not wonderful to meditate on the gospel that God has qualified, rescued, transferred, and redeemed all those who are in Christ? Surely this reminder ought to cause us to have a more thankful heart before the Lord. That ultimately leads to us being fully pleasing to Him. And so let's quickly ask the question, how might we help one another have a more thankful heart? I don't think this is rocket science here. I think this is simply just us reminding one another of these truths. When you go in the parking lot after, remind each other of these truths. When you leave here, text these truths to one another. Call your brother and sister and remind them of what is theirs in Christ. Have people over and on your, at your dinner table talk about the goodness of the gospel. That's what we should be doing, reminding one another daily. And so, to conclude, Paul's prayer of petition is pretty straightforward. He prays that this congregation would grow in the knowledge of God's will for the purpose that they might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And Paul doesn't leave us wondering what this purpose statement might look like. No, he spends the rest of the prayer fleshing out four characteristics that give evidence to a life pleasing of the Lord. Again, it's like Paul is saying, you've only just begun. I praise God for your salvation and your genuine progress, yet this starting line should be leading to your spiritual growth. And I'm praying towards that end. When is the last time that you have prayed this prayer for yourself or for one another? I'm praying that we would prioritize our spiritual maturity and the spiritual maturity of others and that our prayers would reflect that. NBC, we've only just begun. Let us continue to press on so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Let us pray. Holy Father, as we come before you, we praise you that you have qualified us, that you have rescued us, that you have delivered us, that in you there is forgiveness of sins. And so as we stand redeemed, Father, I pray that we would be after one another's spiritual maturity. I pray that we would battle for one another, that we might work to present everyone mature in Christ. In his name, amen. All right, so you can stand because we're going to respond in singing our final hymn, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And I want to point out the first, um, just, just part of the first verse, it says this. I was just meditating on this earlier. What a gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom. So, as we have been redeemed, forgiven for our sins, let's worship Jesus Christ through this song.